Thank you, Pastor Aaron and the worship team for directing our hearts to find rest for our souls in our compassionate Savior. And thank you, church, for singing that truth to each other and to me. We just sang these words, are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? He is coming, soon returning. Rest in him. What, what a fitting truth for us to sing to each other and to the Lord as we continue our worship of God for the hope that is still future. The hope we have in our Savior's future return, which is what we'll consider during our sermon this morning. So please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the second to last page in your Bible. Revelation chapter 21. Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, Revelation 21, verse 1. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What do you desire the most? What has the strongest foothold in your heart? Or can I ask it another way? What gives you the greatest hope? Does the thought of heaven give you hope to endure through any challenge in this life? A few months ago, I sat next to an, an ethnically Jewish woman on a plane, and we, we got to know each other, struck up a conversation, and she shared that she grew up in Israel, but since leaving home had, had abandoned the, the faith of her parents, given up her Jewish religion, and was now searching for enlightenment through naturalistic and spiritual-type philosophy, and as our conversation progressed, naturally, as conversations on planes seemed to go to, we started talking about what will happen, what we believe, what will happen when we die. And to tell me her theology of the afterlife, she told me a, a story of a time that she visited a loved one's grave. When she went to go say some goodbyes and remember her, her loved one, she observed that on top of the grave plot 
a flower had bloomed. And she ended her story there, and what she meant was her view of the afterlife is that her soul will cease existing, and her physical body maybe will provide nutrition for a flower, and she can continue the circle of life. Her hope is in becoming flower food. Tragically, devastatingly, that offers no hope. You and I are so privileged, aren't we? Only because God chose to remove the spiritual blinders from our eyes are we able to believe what God says about eternity. Apart from God's grace, we would be just like my friend on the plane, without hope and merely guessing at what life after death is like. But in God's grace, He has clearly revealed His future plans to us in Scripture. We can know with confidence, what awaits us after death. This is something that we call heaven. We read about heaven in Scripture and in, in good books that explain Scripture to us. But does this knowledge of heaven do something in your heart? Does it make you eager for Christ to return and then take you with him to heaven? Do you imagine, do you wonder what heaven will be like and and in turn, desire to be with Christ more than any worldly thing in this life. That's exactly the response the Apostle John has after receiving all the visions of, of, from Jesus of what will happen in the future. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20, John's response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the book of Revelation, while the Apostle John is in exile on the island of Patmos around AD 95, Jesus gives him a series of visions of what will take place in the future. And he tells John what's going to happen next in order to cement a Christian's hope in a very certain future. And that hope should give us a resolve and ability to endure anything that life throws at us, even persecution. What's remarkable to me about the book of Revelation is that Jesus clearly reveals what will happen in the future. Revelation is not a cryptic code book that only those with PhDs can understand. The word revelation of Jesus Christ, it means to reveal something, to make something known, to make something clear. We can know God's future plans. Smedley Yates, one of the professors in the Expositors Seminary and a pastor of our, one of our sister churches, calls Revelation history. It just hasn't happened yet. History that has not happened yet. That's, that's good. So John sees a vision first of worship in the throne room. Then seven seals are opened. Seven trumpets are blown. Seven bowls are poured out, each unleashing God's wrath against sin upon the earth. After this, what we tend to call the tribulation period, Christ then comes down from heaven, locks Satan away in the abyss, then rules his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And after this 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth and a brief and very anticlimactic uprising organized by Satan, 
John is given another vision. In Revelation 21, Jesus shows John and us what heaven or what eternity is going to look like. And this vision, this this chapter is included in our Bibles to cement our hope in our future, our certain and guaranteed future. Heaven is the greatest joy that we will ever experience, and the hope of heaven should make us want and desire for Jesus to return and take us with him. This is why I've titled this sermon, The Hope of Heaven. So we'll organize our study of this passage around three heavenly realities that make us long for Christ's return. Three heavenly realities. See, three descriptions of heaven that should ignite a desire for our Savior to come back and take us with Him to heaven. The first heavenly reality that makes us long for Christ's return is in verse 1. And that is the newness of creation. The newness of creation. Please follow along in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. So at the end of history, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And this is called the eternal state, or maybe more familiarly, heaven. And the scope of what's made new is, is comprehensive. It's, I'm, behold, I saw, I saw rather, a new heaven and a new earth. That's everything physical in the universe. That's the sky. That's the stars above us. That's the ground beneath us. That's the air around us. Everything will be changed. In heaven, there will be a new world, a new universe. What we learn from this verse is that heaven will be here on earth. It's not in some ethereal, mystical corner of of the universe outside far away from our reach. Heaven will be here on earth, except it will be new. It will be entirely different than the present world. It'll be, it'll be unlike what we experience now. God's not just making another copy of, of the current earth. He's not giving the earth a fresh coat of paint. He's not hitting refresh. He's making earth 2.0. It'll be distinct. It'll be different from this present world. And John continues, he explains how it could be possible or or why there's a need for a new world to come into existence. He says, he saw the first heaven, the first earth, the one we're on now, pass away. The first creation will be gone, and so God will create a new world. Just a few verses back in chapter 20, John sees what's going to happen with the world we're standing on. Chapter 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. At the final judgment where where God determines who is in the book of life and, and who is not, this world we're standing on will rapidly flee from God in order to make room for God to create a new heaven 
in a new earth. I think it's natural to, to ask in response to this, why? Why will there be a new heaven and a new earth? Is something wrong with our current world? What, was something wrong with the way God made the first earth? The answer is emphatically no. God made no mistake. Remember what God said after each of the six days of creation. He said that his work is good. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. This world has to go away because we stained it with sin. And it has been that way since Adam and Eve first sinned. And God cursed the ground as a penalty for their sin. You remember that Adam and Eve were given free reign over the garden and told to eat of whatever they wanted except one tree. They were tempted by Satan to disobey God. And then Genesis 3, verse 17, Then to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and I've eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. This is the response. This is the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Since the early days of the human race, because of Adam's sin at the beginning, and because our sin all throughout history adding to and compounding to the pile of sin, our world bears the marks of the curse of sin. Futility, opposition, difficulty, toil, challenge, all these at various times characterize our present world. If you spent any time in a garden, you've experienced the effects of sin's curse on the earth. You pull one weed, come back the next day, three more are in its place. It feels futile. We're more going to be our experience of the curse was caterpillars in our tomato plants. They seemingly appear out of thin air and then turn the tomato plant into Swiss cheese. That's that how we experience the curse. Sin's effects are pervasive. The current earth must be made new because sin plagues it. We know how our world began. We know what it's like living in our world now. And we know how our world will end. It will be made completely new with no curse of sin. John also gives us an, an interesting detail about the new heavens and the new earth. You catch that at the end of verse 1. He says, there is no longer any sea. The, he- the first heavens and the first earth will go away and a new one will replace it. But the sea won't be replaced with something new. This is not to say that there's no water on the new world. Chapter 22 of Revelation describes a river of life that flows out of the center of Jerusalem and waters trees of life on on each side of its banks. Now, the sea is not going away because big bodies of water are inherently evil or or the source of evil necessarily. Rather, the sea is going away because the nature of big bodies of water are hostile to humans. I mean, think of this. You can't live on the sea. It's dangerous to cross the ocean. 
You can't drink most of the water on the, on the earth because it's salt water. It takes expensive and, and challenging filtering and desalination to be used. So in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more sea. 71% of the surface of this earth is covered by water. In heaven, that will all be gone. Instead, it will be inhabitable, it will be safe, it will be usable land. This may disappoint some of you, but I'm sorry to say, there will be no beachfront property in heaven. But you won't be sad about it. Stick with me until verse 4. You will not be sad about that. Heaven will be drastically different than this earth. Heaven will be on earth, except it'll be completely new. Can you, can you use your sanctified imagination with me just for a moment? And can we wander together? What will that be like? Will there be new plants and animals that don't exist, that we don't have categories in our mind for? Will there be new mountains and valleys and climates to explore? Is there going to be more space to spread out and, and live since 71% of our planet will be used for land now? What's, what is it going to be like to work on an earth that is not cursed with sin? A new heaven and a new earth, a, a world without sin is exciting. And that is something we long for. That is enough to make us say, amen, come Lord Jesus. But that's not even close to the most incredible, the most hopeful part of heaven. Three heavenly realities in this passage that make us long for Christ's return. The first is the newness of creation will have a world without sin. The second heavenly reality is the presence of God. The presence of God in heaven makes us long for Christ's return. That's in verses 2 and 3. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. After God recreates the world, he will give the world a new capital city. God has already built the new Jerusalem and and he's storing it somewhere in the far corner of the universe. And at this point in this future point in history, God will lay it in place on the new earth. So Jesus gives John a vision of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. He's, he's seeing it mid-flight coming down out of the sky on its way to its destination on earth. But keep in mind, verse 16 says that Jerusalem is 1,500 miles long. 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall. What a vision. What a sight John is seeing. Jerusalem is significant throughout the people of God's history, especially for the nation of Israel, because that's the, nation of the city of Jerusalem is where the temple was. It's where God met with his people before Christ came. The people of God, Israel in particular, would would come to Jerusalem to worship God because that's where God chose to localize his presence on earth. Jerusalem was the center of all religious activity. 
And the new Jerusalem is where we will get to see God. The new Jerusalem, John observes, is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Many of you here are married and have witnessed the process of a bride getting prepared for a wedding. Us guys only need a few minutes to throw on our suits and we're ready to go for for the wedding photos. But the bridal party has been up since 4 a.m. getting their hair and their makeup done. And the bride does this out of, out of a desire to be as beautiful, as appealing as possible to please her husband, to, to bring him joy. And this new Jerusalem is beautified, is, is made lovely by God with the same diligence and attention as a bride prepares herself before walking down the aisle to see her groom. The new Jerusalem is described as, as holy, as new, as beautiful. And the rest of chapter 21 describes the city's unparalleled beauty with great vivid detail and word pictures. It'll have gates made out of pearl, streets made out of a new kind of gold that's transparent. The foundation is purely precious stones. The whole city is going to shine with radiant splendor, reflecting God's glory. It's going to be beautiful beyond imagination. We have nothing to compare it to this side of heaven. But why? Why is Jerusalem given so much attention and made so, so amazing? Why is it so beautiful? The new Jerusalem is made beautiful because that's where God will live. God's home is prepared by him to be a fitting setting for his glory. The new Jerusalem is made beautiful because that is where God's people will have direct access and fellowship with God. Which is explained further in verse 3. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is the 20th time that John hears a loud voice in Revelation, and we know that, that this voice in verse 3 is coming from an angel in the throne room and not from God since the one who sits on the throne speaks in verse 5. So this loud voice is from an angelic messenger in the throne room of God. And the angel loudly proclaims four statements that, that all reinforce the reality that God will be present with his people in a new way. He says, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. In that first statement, the tabernacle of God is among men. The tabernacle, a tabernacle in general, is, is just a mobile shelter. It's a tent. And it's important in Israel's history because the, the tabernacle is where Israel could worship God, where Israel could go to meet with God before the temple was built in Jerusalem, back when God took Israel 
out of Egypt. They were wandering through the desert before God brought them into the promised land and, and Solomon built a temple where God's people could meet with him. The tabernacle is where that generation of Israel could meet with God. In heaven, God will not meet with his people in a mobile tent behind smoke and curtains. God's new home, his meeting place will be face to face with us. God's immediate, his physical presence will be in the new Jerusalem. God himself will be with us in heaven. God's not going to send an angel to go meet with us on his behalf. He's he's not going to send one of the apostles to go bring us a message. God will make his home with us on earth in the new Jerusalem. And not only that, not only will God live with us, but he will make us his people. It will be his precious possession. Even more, a few verses later in verse 7, God says that I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who's found in the book of life, who's found faithful and has faith in Christ, is going to be made God's son. We'll have a relationship as, as intimate and as precious as a father to a son. We will be God's precious possession. In God's yard, there will not be keep out signs. He will live on earth in Jerusalem so that he's among his people and so that his people have access to him to bring him praise, to give him thanks, to see his face. We will get to experience what Adam and Eve had the singular privilege of experiencing, walking with God on earth. This is why the new Jerusalem is significant. It's because God will have his throne in Jerusalem. He will live among his people who have been forgiven for their sin. God won't live behind the tent flaps of the tabernacle. He's not going to live in a temple. He's not going to be in some isolated, cozy corner of heaven. He will live in the capital city of heaven. Somehow, the omnipresent God will be among us. He will live with us. He will be in the midst of us. God himself will forever live with his people. Our faith will be made sight. Can you wrap your mind around that with me for a moment? Our faith will be made sight. In this age today, the Holy Spirit assures us of our salvation And his ministry is is far more than sufficient to steady our faith in a season of doubting. Thankful to the Lord for his ministry. But there will be a day when you won't need faith. You can walk up to the throne room and see God for yourself with your own eyes. We will get to see our God face to face on a new earth. He will be there in heaven. We will get to see the God who created us. The God who chose us for salvation. The God who forgave our sin by punishing his son on, in our behalf. See, the God who showed us unending patience each day of our lives. The God who had every moment of our life planned out. We will get to see our good God and live with him for eternity. 
and seeing him as the greatest joy we could possibly imagine. The presence of God is more than enough to make us say, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. But the glories of eternal life don't stop there. One of the benefits of God's presence on the new earth is is what John hears about in verse 4. That's the removal of suffering. Because God's on earth. Suffering is removed. Three heavenly realities that make us long for Christ's return. The newness of creation. There will be a world without sin. Second, is the presence of God. He will be present with us physically, immediately available on earth. And the third heavenly reality that makes us long for our Savior to come back is the removal of suffering. Look down with me in verse 4. And he and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Not only is the earth made new, not only do we have face-to-face access to God, but God will remove all our suffering in heaven. In this verse, John has to describe what he's hearing using statements about what heaven won't be like. Because heaven is so far beyond our, our finite comprehension He can't describe what heaven will be like because he has nothing to compare heaven to. We've only experienced life marked with various degrees of suffering, but heaven will be completely opposite. God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. These tears that are wiped away are, it's not grief over the sin that we committed in this life, Those sins have been forgiven and taken away by by Jesus' death on the cross. The tears that are wiped away are tears of of pain, of struggle, of heartache, of grief, of sadness, of tears that stem from living in this present world, from battling the curse of sin. But notice who will remove our tears. He, God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God will personally wipe away our tears. He will wipe away each and every tear from each and every believer's eyes. Not a single tear will be missed. No tear is too small. No believer is too insignificant for God's loving attention in heaven. This makes me think of my my two sons, Regularly, they're in a situation where they're crying and need comforted. And all at times, cradle their head in my hands and and wipe their tears from their eyes, try to comfort them. God will do that to us in an infinitely greater way. He'll be like a father that cradles his child's face in his hand and, and wipes away every tear and bringing us comfort. Except... God will wipe away tears for the final time. His comfort will be infinitely greater. No more tears will be shed once the Lord wipes them away. What a compassionate, what a loving God we serve. Nothing escapes God's notice. 
There's no tear. There's no pain that's too insignificant, that's too small for our God. Not only will God wipe away tears, but notice in verse 4, he also removes the possibility of death in heaven. He says, there will no longer be any death. Death takes its final life at the last rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. In eternity, there's no more sin, so there's no more death. The Apostle Paul highlights the death of death in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. He says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, so he's saying when, when our finite bodies are, are glorified and we're given heavenly bodies, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death has no victory. Death will have no more sting. Death will be put to death in heaven. And because because death is done away with, there is no more suffering. Look back in verse 4. There will no longer be any mourning for crying or pain. Mourning, crying, and and pain are all expressions of sorrow, of of grief, of trouble, of anxiety. Summarize it simply, this, this is suffering. Mourning, crying, and pain all die along with death. Suffering is no more in heaven. It will be a world without suffering. How can this be? How is it possible that there is no suffering in heaven? There will be no more suffering in heaven because there will be no more sin. And because God will be walking around among us, anything that might cause grief or or disunity or sorrow will be taken out of existence when the new new earth and new heaven replace the old one. We'll have no more grief for broken relationships. We will have no more mourning the death of a loved one. No more dread over a, a terminal diagnosis from your doctor. No more heartache over a child's rebellion. No more sadness over all the ways we fall short at work and at home. No more struggle with sin and sanctification. No more pain. No more sickness, no more suffering. Maybe there are some of you here this morning that in your seat are bearing the weight of sorrow in your heart. What a great comfort this reality of heaven is for you and for me. There will be a day when your tears are dried by God's hand. There will be a time when your heart is no longer heavy There will be a day when your struggle against the flesh and sin is won. There will be a day when sorrow is replaced with joy. John ends this section in verse 4 by observing that the first things have passed away. This world cursed by sin and, and the suffering we experience today are the first things 
that pass away, that will be taken away in heaven. The experience of suffering is limited to this life on earth. Those things will be merely history in heaven. We will not suffer when we are in the presence of God. Death and suffering will be history in heaven. Heaven will be beyond anything that we can, we can imagine or expect. And what a glorious hope that we have. So what can we do about this? How can we apply these, this wonderful reality, this, these glimpses into heaven that we, we saw in Revelation 21? When we walk out those doors, how can we be different? May I offer you a, a couple takeaways that I've, that have impressed upon me through my study of this passage this week. The first takeaway is think rightly about heaven. Think rightly about heaven. The world tends to think of heaven as a scene among the clouds with, with winged baby angels with harps playing music and people dressed in, in clean white robes milling about. Ultimately, the world thinks of heaven as, as boring. But that cannot be further from the truth. Heaven is the greatest joy we can possibly imagine. Heaven will be on a brand new earth with no curse of sin. God himself will live on earth with all believers. He will remove all our suffering and replace it with joy in his presence. Listen to what David writes about being in God's presence in Psalm 16, verse 11. He says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Think rightly about heaven. Fill your mind with concrete truth in Scripture about where believers are going to spend eternity. Replace worldly thoughts about eternal life with God's plans for eternity. And if we think rightly about heaven, that naturally produces an eagerness in the heart of a believer, which is our second takeaway. Look forward to heaven. Second takeaway is look forward to heaven. Does heaven excite you? Do you eagerly anticipate heaven? Do you want to be there? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, that we are to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our exclusive hope is to be in something that hasn't happened yet. We're to hope exclusively in the end of time when Jesus Christ returns and brings us the grace that he has long promised us, and part of which is heaven. So what does it look like to look forward to heaven? That's a grand goal. It sounds nice, but practically, what do you, how does one apply that? This is a cardiovascular exam. This is your heart check. A diagnostic for what do you truly value in worship? Do you desire for Christ to return and to see your God face to face? Or 
Is there something else in this world that you want more than him? I know God gives good gifts and thankful for the kindness he shows us with with family, with friends, with, with children. And are we tempted to want the gift more than we want the giver? If there's something you long for more than heaven, confess that to the Lord for what it is idolatry. Ask for his help to align your desires to match what he has promised to give you. God has promised to give all who believe in Jesus heaven to be with believers for all eternity. Ask for God's help to retrain your desires to want what he has promised to give you. Looking forward to heaven also changes our perspective in this life. The guaranteed hope of heaven for believers can sustain us through any trial, any season of suffering. God uses our future hope to give us endurance today. That's that's what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul's saying that our earthly bodies are dying, but God is sanctifying us even in this life to prepare for our eternal life. We can look forward to what is to come that has a glory that cannot be compared to anything that we've seen on earth. Looking forward to heaven can motivate us to endure through hardship in life. Studying this passage and and feeling the pressures and pain of, of this world has fueled my desire for heaven. For good reason, Paul says that he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Philippians 1, 23. Jesus Christ, the only righteous God-man, was crushed for our sin. He took the full wrath of God to give us access to the unfathomable kingdom of God. This access is freely given to all who would believe that Jesus died for their sins. He was resurrected from the dead as a promise for their future resurrection. If you believe in Jesus, you will get to see him in heaven. We will get to thank him face to face and worship him for the salvation he earned for us. He will wipe away each tear of sorrow and pain from our eyes and clothe us in his righteousness. As Christians, we don't hope in becoming flower food. We're continuing the circle of life like my friend on the plane did. Our hope is eternity in heaven with God. Heaven is the greatest hope a Christian may have. What an amazing God to give us this hope of heaven. Can I say that the best days of your life are ahead of you if you are in Christ? And may this make us say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.